This is Liminal Leaders, a podcast exploring the changing nature of leadership in business transformation. We are your hosts, Martin Dyson and Brian Hoadley. And not only are we producing this podcast, but we're also writing a book on liminal leadership. Each episode follows one of two formats. It's either a drop-in session where Martin and I discuss various themes in our book, reflecting on how the topics have manifested in our own practice and where we might take our writing next. Or Brian and I have a discussion with a guest expert or contributor who we want to interview as part of our research. Either way, these are pretty much the raw recordings of our conversations, with minimal editing allowing you to listen in on our working and thinking process. It is tricky, and it, we've got a long way to go to establish that ethics is not a luxury good. Ethics should be baked into all products and services. This is a, a mandatory way of... You're making ethical decisions whether you prioritise them or not, whether you choose to make ethical decisions or not. Right. There's always an ethical connotation or ethical content to what you do. So it needs to be woven into everything and not just seen as this sort of yeah organic trade, fair trade, biodynamic luxury version of the product that yes, the rich 1% can buy and then everyone else has the exploitative mass market one. Today, Brian and I are in conversation with Kenneth Bowles, a designer and technologist turned ethicist and soon to be a Fulbright scholar researching anticipatory ethics. Kenneth's written a fantastic book called Future Ethics, in which he outlines for those who are maybe not familiar with the field of ethics, how to approach it, how to understand the different frameworks that exist within it, and how to approach the use and integration of ethics into the decision-making governance of organisations. I was particularly interested um, from the book where he talks about the use of design futures and speculative design to help with some of the initial stages of uncovering potential unintended consequences or or harms, but also really interested to see his perspective on the different roles that people play within an organisation and and sticking to those roles, to that value and impact that you have. And as we are exploring just exactly that, the role of of leaders in liminal organisations, it was refreshing uh, to hear Kenneth talking about um, the way that certain roles should just turn up and and be what they are, but also to highlight the fact that ethics itself, perhaps perceived in some quarters as mm, fluffy and vague, is in fact incredibly precise and and rigorous, which I thought speaks to some knowledge or mindset gap that there may well be in, in leaders that would be worth um, us exploring as we continue on this path of, of, of articulating what we think um, makes for a, a great leader in a liminal space. So let's drop in on that conversation now. I hope you enjoy it and find it useful. And as always, please do get in touch and let us know what you think. Give us a follow and a rating on Apple's podcasts. Everything helps. Thank you. So the topics and the people that we're talking to is jumping around all over the place in a nice way from people on target list for us, like transformation directors. We're looking to talk to people who've hired designers, but aren't designers themselves at the C-suite or Mm. exec level. Like why have they done that? And we've been talking to people from the design community as well. So we're trying to step outside of it just although we're from design. So it really is about transformation and change. And I just thought, I thought your work on ethics and all the things that you covered in the book has got a lot of relevancy to it. And partially what I wanted to do today was have a conversation about that. For Mm. us, the objective is to challenge, to help us get different perspectives from people. We'd really appreciate just being challenged on some of our assumptions as well. So at times we might in this conversation go, we were thinking X, Y, Z, and we're not looking for affirmations. (laughs) <laughs> mm. at all okay. you're not an affirmer so that's okay i know <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you're speaking to uh, a philosopher of sorts now exactly. so that, yeah you're not going to get 
a scent fluffy affirmations necessarily yeah yeah <laughs> I, was really, I was really hoping for a friday morning i'd get some affirmation after the week i've had <laughs> <laughs> so kenneth uh, and I met uh, at a, I think it was a tech circus panel that I was hosting at a Deloitte mm. studio in London and he, uh, appropriately took down a step or two, the king of A-B testing, self-appointed title, which I just, I, I really enjoy. I would, I was, you know, I liked being quite involved as a host on a panel, but I just sat back, just watched the whole thing go. It was brilliant. And I think it was, it was a good pre, panel. It was, it was a pre-publication of the book, wasn't it, I think? Um, yes i think it would have been yeah you were working on it at the time yeah. and i just thought this is you know this is what this is one to track brian and i worked together at lloyd's banking group mm. and knew each other uh before and have obviously kept in touch since so we had an experience at lloyd's of going through some transformation stuff there that was you know nearly very good mm. you know uh, better than others still flawed but had little these chinks of really interesting stuff and saw and hit the limits of where Lloyd's was using purpose and mission and then going, oops, no, that's a bit sticky. So there's a lot in ethics and morals of company in there that was that. So it's it's triggered a lot of things for us in our experience. Yeah, again, for sure. So, yeah. So yeah, that's that's really the 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 background. You're heading off to do a Fulbright, aren't you? Congratulations. Uh thank you. Yes I am. Uh I was a little bit premature announcing it, actually. I haven't got in trouble, but uh, there's, there's, there's meant to be press releases and things like that. Uh, so I've got a bit telling people. But anyway, so I'll, yes, I'll be in the, I'll be in North Carolina uh, between January and June next year, uh, lecturing wow. and researching uh, on what I'm calling anticipatory ethics. Ooh. Sort of fairly under-explored uh, area of ethics about how we anticipate the consequences of decisions before they happen. Uh, hasn't wow. really been looked at in that much detail, so there's a bit of a gap for someone to look at it. And so I guess uh, I can I can help with that quest. Yeah, interesting. Is, interesting. is is that a is that an area where where you would deploy things like design fiction and and yeah, yeah, exactly that. So there's <clears throat> there are there are a few approaches. There 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 have been a few folks looking at it. I'm not I'm not saying. That uh, you know, it's been completely underexplored, and I don't want to downplay their work. But uh, there hasn't been a lot of work to tie together some some of the kind of the newer methods. There's sort of old older sort of technology assessment methods that have been in play uh, that have been known about for you know a little while. But there hasn't been much of a connection yet with futures and foresight methods. Mm-hmm. And I see that's a really interesting space. How can we use those to depict and anticipate potential consequences, be they first, second order, or third order, even of decisions, so that we can try and anticipate and mitigate any or the, the, the most significant harms that we might do so yeah certainly interested in the intersection between design uh, design fiction and other futures methods and see you know how can we link that with a uh, a more grounded kind of philosophical you know proper sort of robust ethical way of looking at things as well and then some of these older sort of technology assessment type methods as well what's the intersection and what's what's the most useful you know selection of tools from that from that toolkit that regular tech practitioners in particular can start using yeah you you've got a you've i think you did something with future ethics which i was i've described it to other people as the 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 book is really good at explaining and codifying for non-philosophy and ethics people and, and taking them on a guide through what's important without becoming shallow which is a really hard thing to do with a complex area it's even like last night as i was you know doing a bit of prep for this and my wife was saying oh you know what are you working on i said well i'm talking to an ethicist tomorrow and she's like why as in not as in (laughs) two two levels to why you're like why is that connected you know uh but also like why are you putting yourself through that (laughs) that's a hard conversation can you can you just remind both Brian and I and anybody listening in, what are the key philosophical frameworks that ground pretty much everything we're going to now talk about? Because these these terms, you know, utilitarian has a sense of, I could probably guess what that means. Deontological is not a word that people use in everyday life, hmm. you know, and then it, it can be quite hard for people to understand the difference between values and morals and ethics. And I think you did a really good job of that in the book. And I just wondered whether you could ground our discussion today in a bit of that understanding first, because then everything else kind of flows from that, which I've, I've got a ton of questions about. Sure. Okay. 
So one of the most fundamental questions is probably what's the difference between ethics and morals or ethics and morality? And most people have a sense that, you know, morality is something innate and ethics is something social. In truth, a lot of philosophers actually don't really make a distinction. It's it's almost a, a I won't say it's a it's a it's a non-event as a debate, but I don't make a distinction. Uh, and I actually just yeah, lay that one out there to begin with. I'll use those yeah. terms interchangeably. So the book looks at ethical challenges through what I'm calling three lenses. And these are really the main the three main schools of contemporary ethics. So you mentioned one utilitarianism. This is the idea that basically we should maximize happiness. More or less, it's, you know, the, the right thing to do is whatever maximizes happiness for the most people. Mm-hmm. And then by extension, of course, minimizes suffering. You can kind of see it as like an equation, as a calculus, that, you know, mm-hmm. suffering is a negative, happiness is a positive. You sort of sum that up over the entire set of actors who are involved in that decision or affected by that decision. And you do whatever makes the most people happy. Mm-hmm. It has its advantages. People like it because it sort of feels something you can calculate and so a lot of technologists sort of lean that kind of way it's intuitively like a good thing we you know we all like happiness it has a number of downsides and maybe we can talk about those later so that's one angle uh another that you mentioned then is is deontology or duty ethics as it's sometimes known that's i probably in retrospect could have used that term but it's basically it's basically the same thing so duty ethics is really about what rules do we have to follow what obligations and duties do we have to others and you know it's about outlining a set of rules and principles by which we should behave and saying that Mm. the right thing to do is whatever's in accordance with those rules Mm. and so we can think you know like the 10 commandments for example you know if you're if you're a christian you might choose that as your moral rule set now Mm. it's not a very good moral rule set you know it kind of lacks a lot of stuff but nevertheless it's a it's a start asimov's uh, three laws of robotics, for example, right. are essentially a deontological or a duty ethics set of principles mm-hmm. to guide robot behavior. Yeah. So again, there's some pluses and there's certainly some minuses. You know, what if you meet a situation that isn't catered for in the rules, which is, you know, half of Asimov's work is talking about basically the downsides of that. Yeah. Uh, but nevertheless, that's that's a second way of looking at it. And then the third angle that we talk about is uh, virtue ethics. And virtue ethics isn't about you know, the outcome of happiness. And it's not about following certain rules. It's really talking about the character of the person. Hmm. Are you a virtuous person? And so they, virtue ethicists would say that the right thing to do is whatever a virtuous person would do. Hmm. It's a little bit circular because you have yeah, to say, well, what say. makes someone a good yeah. person? Yeah. But this, you know, this goes back to Aristotle is this idea of, of what are the guiding virtues, the values that we should aspire to? You know, they could be courage, they could be kindness, Empathy is one that designers like to talk about a great deal. Mm-hmm. And are we actually living up to those? Are mm-hmm. we taking decisions that genuinely demonstrate those virtues in our mm-hmm. everyday decisions? So that's another yeah. angle. It's another lens to look at this through. So the book is just looking at a ton, ton of essentially emerging technology issues through each of those lenses and seeing how can they help us understand the problem better? How can they help guide us toward decisions? Yeah. And it's, I mean, I've, I've been as a kind of side note to this, but also because it's very relevant right now for all of us, I've been doing a lot of deep diving on machine learning and listening to a lot of people on the machine learning podcasts with some of the leaders from OpenAI, from Google, some of the people at the forefront of that. And they appear to have a very utilitarian approach to things. And I can see that because it's quite calculable for them. And that is their world of calculation of probability of statistics. And you you can kind of see that. And you can also see other things where they're kind of deferring impacts. Like, so job losses, yes, things will change. However, it's okay because universal basic income. Mm-hmm. And you're like, which is a lovely idea mm-hmm. uh, with a huge amount of complexity to achieve. I- irrelevant of your political stance as to whether you like that or not it is complex to achieve but it's like they've just deferred the deferred the impacts by going ubi will be very utilitarian and good and so that will save that problem and 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 then i can you know and i'm like wow that's a huge leap and and this is very common uh, in 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 tech right it's it's the idea of essentially ignoring externalities Mm-hmm. And saying, okay, well, here's the thing we're doing. We're pushing forward with our innovation, with our progress. And yes, it might have a bunch of other social impacts, but that's not our problem. Like that'll be solved by someone else, but it will be solved thus 
thus you know the problem goes away one of the main narratives i suppose about tech ethics in the last few years is we've started to recognize that actually we we have to take responsibility for those externalities ourselves mm-hmm. you know we can't just say if you're airbnb you can't just ignore the effect that you have on the rental market for example mm-hmm. and the characterhood uh, sorry the character of neighborhoods and cities that is changing because of airbnb that is an airbnb problem to look at if you're Facebook, you can't ignore disinformation. You can't say, well, we're just a neutral platform. Mm-hmm. It's like you have a disinformation problem. It's a, it, you really need to get involved in trying to figure that out. So I think this is a, you know, it's a kind of a, a bit of a common parlor trick of tech yeah. to say, well, we just build the thing and then the impacts aren't our problems. Like, no, you've got to start taking those seriously. You can't just appeal to political ideas like UBI and say they will yeah. solve the problem. It's like, maybe they will, maybe they won't. What are you going to do about things? Yeah. And what, yeah, yeah. And there's, you know, and we, we've, it, we've said UBI as if it's one thing, you know, and of yeah. course there's multiple futures around anything, even trying to get close to that. The the reason why I kind of brought that up is because it has a parallel for Brian and I, when we're looking at our, the position of this, we're using the word liminal. Yeah. And we're saying that we believe that change and transformation in large scale organizations it is not recognized as a liminal state. And and we know that people don't use the word liminal in, in day-to-day life, or they don't realize they are, which we've probably mentioned on other pod, on other episodes as well, that you know, you have subliminal, preliminal, but never nobody ever talks about liminal as a state. Mm. So that idea that the future is not yet known, but the 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 then what has been yesterday will never be the same again, right? So you're in this state of change. And we feel like most large corporations don't actually acknowledge the uncertainty of that, let alone the volatility and uncertainty of a complex world as well on top of that. Hmm. And I I guess our premise is that systems thinking, systems design, uh, design thinking as it's meant to be, not consultified, those mindsets are comfortable in those spaces and have a lot to offer. And and I noted that as you were tracking, uh, do we understand ethics as it stands right now? Do we understand the problems that we're facing? You know, how might we approach those? You you referred a lot to systems level thinking, design fictions and strategies and things like that. But I, I also don't want to be in that space of us saying, well, you just have to deal with things this way. There's a there's a there's a gap between where we are now and where how to get people there. So when you say things like that is an Airbnb problem, do we feel that Airbnbs, let's use them as an example, are they coming to that themselves? Are they being pressured to come to that? Are they actually changing, or is this just us as external observers going, yeah, well, you're going to have to, you know, and they're going sure, 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 and then carrying on and not really, you know, what is the change happening? I think it is. And I think it's coming from a mix of forces, right? I think there's consumer pressure, right? You know, you never want to make sweeping generalizations about generations, but it certainly does appear clear from the evidence that uh, particularly younger consumers now are very motivated, motivated by values and that they, you know, will refuse to spend their money with unethical companies. So there's Mm -hmm. kind of a market driver for that. There's clearly a regulatory driver as well. We're seeing a lot of increased appetite for regulation, obviously, mostly in the EU. But, you know, even yesterday uh, you had, you know, I think it was Biden even, you know, himself sort of rubber stamped a, a message. Maybe it was an FTC uh, post or something like this saying essentially, hey, we're, we're going to take a really close look at AI now. Yeah. In the UK, you've got the CMA just came out with this statement saying they're going to look at regulatory options in that space. I've uh, until recently I was working for the ICO. The ICO has a you know strong interest in understanding and uh, mitigating yeah. any privacy harms that might come from this kind of stuff. So there's a regulatory stick, if you like. Mm-hmm. But the other driver that I've been particularly interested in has been employees, has been talent pressure, essentially. Mm-hmm. Now, in the last six, nine months, the strength of that has probably weakened because, frankly, yeah. a lot of these companies have you know reduced their headcounts and got rid of a bunch of folks. And so it's less of a candidate's market than it was nine months ago in tech. But certainly it was you know, very clear that in-demand tech workers were able to influence, strongly influence the moral direction of companies. And you saw the Google walkout, for example, where you know, it's essentially a wildcat strike 
where yeah. you know, Google employees walked out in their thousands over allegations of sexual harassment and cover-ups. Mm-hmm. Uh, Facebook, for example, uh, I think it was CNBC reported they used to be able to close 90% of their job offers that they made to software engineers in 2016. And by 2019, that figure was down to 50%. Wow. And which is just drive, you know, that you can imagine that's a huge drain on mm-hmm. uh, future competitiveness of the company. If you can't attract the best candidates uh, or if you can't close the best candidates, obviously it drives your recruitment costs way up as well. Yeah. And you'd imagine it probably causes a retention problem as well on the, mm-hmm. on the flip side. So that's been a really important driver. Employees mm-hmm. recognizing they've had power to push for change inside mm-hmm. companies. And so a lot of the time when I'm brought in, actually, it's because there's a like a VP or a senior director or something like that saying, well, my, my team's starting to really talk about ethics and I yeah. agree, but I don't really know where to start, but it looks like you yeah. understand design and ethics. So come and tell us what we <laughs> need to know. And a lot of the times because that rumbling has been happening from, you know, within the team. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. And there's, I mean, you mentioned, because as soon as you said consumer choice, I was thinking financial ability to make that choice. I think one of the classic examples I always give is, which is, which will age some people and definitely locate some people listening because it's a UK example, but the chef Hugh Fernley Whittinghall, who made a big push on uh, free range chickens right, and, and organic produce and things like that. And he took some families and took them through a six week experience of, you know, buying the right produce as it were. And they were all, you know, even the hardest opponent to it, which was this lady, a family of four who lived on a council estate and was low income, you know, was convinced by the end, but cut to, you know, you know, the final post episode. And we go back and visit them two, three months later. Yeah. But that chicken in Tesco costs three pounds 50 and it feeds my family for two days. So nice. It was fun while it lasted, but my economic pressure. So I, I wonder sometimes, and you mentioned it with the employees as well, the economy then has, and other contexts have an impact on the extent to which people will make those choices. And I know yeah. we're going off of tech, but heck, the the sausage, the meat manufacturer who were making alternative plant-based meat produce have cut their range by 90% because consumer mm-hmm. demand has changed because it's expensive. So it's an interesting factor of like, our ability to make these choices and put these pressures on, which I guess is where the regulator needs to come in to force them. Yeah, I think so. You know, it's 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 harder to be ethical in a downturn. Let's let's be honest. Right. And that goes as a consumer and as a you know a chief exec, um, particularly in you know sort of zero sum type markets. Right. That's why you know you've got to really compete. You've got to really kind of scrabble for every scrap of market share, and you see that particularly in in very kind of emergent technology spaces as well. Like you know, uh, for example, e scooters. You know, all these e scooter rental companies that have just come along and literally just dump twenty thousand scooters on the streets of Paris or whatever it is, and you wake up one morning and suddenly your city has been colonized by these things, and they they haven't consulted the the mayor or the council or anything like that. They've just come and you know thrown them on the streets. And they know what they're doing, but they know that they, they can get a foothold in that market by doing so. And mm-hmm. so ethics be damned. Mm-hmm. At least that's the perception. Of course, that does them long-term harm. As we've seen in Paris, Paris has just voted to remove them and to throw these people out of the city because of the aggressive and hostile way that they've tried to conquer that market. But it is it is tricky. And it, it we've got a long way to go to establish that ethics is not a luxury good. Right. Mm-hmm. Ethics should be baked into all products and services. This this is a you know a mandatory way of you are making ethical decisions whether you prioritize them or not, whether you choose to make ethical decisions or not. Right. There's always an ethical connotation or, or ethical content to what you do. So it needs to be woven into everything and not just seen as this sort of yeah, organic trade, you know, fair trade you know, biodynamic luxury uh, version of the product that, yes, you know, the rich 1% can buy and then everyone else has the exploitative mass market one. I, I uh, it, It's a shame that there's still that connotation sometimes that, well, if you want the ethical thing, then you have to pay a ton more for it. And if yeah. you don't, it's fine because here's the unethical one. Mm. So what are the, I mean, I think you've touched on it a bit now already, but what do you think are the the ethical challenges and dilemmas that, exec leaders are going to be facing, especially if they're going through, if we could put the context of large scale transformation programs. And those are those are normally targeted at some kind of 
ability to draw more upside from a business or reduce a cost in the business. But it's also about the survival of a business in the future, fundamentally, mm. you know. So whether those, I mean, I appreciate that we've all worked with a lot with design leaders, but for all leaders in kind of in change and transformation, what what do you see as the kind of ethical challenges and dilemmas that they're going to be facing into in the future? And then perhaps we could get into like how, what tools they can use to address those. Mm. Well, one, I'm just going to step back a bit and I want to talk about the term sure. itself, actually, because one yeah. of the big challenges you've got in raising ethics is that word, is the E word, right. which is terrifying to many leaders and many organizations. Mm. And, you know, anyone who works in this space has has had to create a list of euphemisms uh, mm. that are more palatable to certain businesses. Some you can, you can get away, if you like, with talking about ethics. Some you have to couch it as responsible technology, responsible innovation, whatever it might be, right. sustainable. You know, there are different, different ways of talking about it. But fundamentally, we're talking about the same stuff. But the, the word itself worries some people. Because they think ethics is subjective, they think it's vague, they think it's hand-wavy and unscientific, all of which are incorrect. It is certainly not subjective, and it's it's certainly not vague. It's, I mean, you know, if you hang around philosophers, they're extremely precise people, right? They are pedantic <laughs> to the extreme. It's not, they're not vague and hand-wavy. But there is something about that kind of mental block. And also, I think there's a lot, there's a concern that, you know, it's going to be judgy, Right. That mm. you're going to say that I'm a, an immoral person, I'm a bad person because I do these things, because I support these practices. And I, actually, that's not, not really what ethics is about. We're not about trying to shame individuals. We're trying to say, here are practices that are better than others. We should do X. We maybe shouldn't do Y so much going forward and trying to steer our way to a better future. So, yeah, so that, that, that language itself is sometimes a barrier to discussion. Mm-hmm. Now, when you come to looking at what are the ethical challenges of your, you know, within your your company, I mean, obviously it depends on the sector. You know, some sure. sectors will have higher stakes or you know particular particular challenges. But I I have a, a very rough taxonomy, if you like, of, of potential ethical risks or harms, mm-hmm. and they are, if I can just remember them off the top of my head, mm-hmm. you might have physical harms, mental mm-hmm. harms, you might have loss of agency and dignity. Uh, I'm talking now for for users, essentially. Mm-hmm. You might have user safety problems. What else have I got on that list? Ecological harms. I can't remember the other two off the top of my head. I, I always mm. have to consult my list because I have a terrible memory. <laughs> but you find a lot of these cut across all types of sectors and products. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, my teaching, that's, you know, and, and consulting with companies. I often train uh, organizations to look at those known categories of risk and say, well, how can those apply yeah. in these particular situations and kind of work backwards from there. Right. Interesting. Okay. And then, so I think in, in your, in your book and, and actually many other people are trying to help, uh, companies and teams and individuals navigate change. The first step is to acknowledge and make, make visible and share a language around the, the, the problems and challenges that you're facing, make it, make it visible and understandable and for in the first instance. And I think that kind of being clear on what the harms could be is an important step in that. You've that one of the things that I'd, I'd really picked up on in the book was that and, and you're not the only person talking about this as well, actually. There's there's quite a few people it seems to be you seem to have preempted by quite some years uh, a, a fundamental need to talk about how we deal with uncertainty and volatility in the world beyond the I'm an innovation consultant and I'm looking for a really cool proposition I can pull out of that right mm. Matt Watkinson uh, Watkinson has been talking about you know mastering uncertainty Maria and Christopher Ireland have been talking about change makers everybody's Cheryl Kababa has uh, written a book on closing the loop which is systems thinking for designers Everybody's basically going, look, the world is really complex and ethics is one of the complexities in the world. What's your perspective on how systems thinking, design futures, these kind of uh, mindsets and tool sets can help executive teams, whether they are in the design innovation function or not, but responsible for change? Well, I mean, it's a it's a big question. I mean, how? So, I guess we put it another way: is is easy for us as a 
a bunch of people related to design to go, oh, we think it's a great idea. These are really useful things. Yeah. yeah. Presumably they're not panacea. Uh, presumably they're not the only mm-hmm. thing. But what role do you see them playing? Well, maybe the angle I, I, I want to come at this from is mm. designers are often under a lot of pressure to understand the business, right? Yeah. Particularly the more senior you get, you're told this is this is the way you improve your influence and increase your leverage inside an organization is you've got to speak the language of the business. So you see designers going off to do MBAs and you know all this sort of stuff. Yeah. I reject that and I resist that. There are enough suits inside a business already. Don't become another one of them. The entire value you bring as a designer is your anti-stance to that, right. is your perspective that is systemic, that is user-focused, that is humanistic, that is complex, irreducible, and yes, vague and weird and creative and all these kind of things that a lot of businesses are scared of and moral, you know. And I actually look at some of these sort of amplified design techniques and mentalities as a way of reminding business that that is a good thing and we should embrace that. And not every problem is reducible to some sort of scientific inquiry. That's not, it's, it's, it's important that we retain those more complex and more nuanced ways of looking at the world. And I think that for me is the real value of this Mm -hmm. stuff is challenging the default uh, sort of pseudoscientific mentalities that a lot of organizations have, you know, data-driven enterprises and things like that. Like, well, there is more to knowledge about the world than data. Whether you like it or not, your data will not tell you everything. There are different ways of looking at problems. And here are some of those ways and embrace that slightly scary territory. Cool. I think, well, Brian, I'll tell you, I've been very, I'm being very guilty of being the one shouting for, you need to know more about business as a design leader, for sure. I, I, I recognise that challenge actually because I think that falls into the sure for some leaders, but not all. You know. Yeah, and if if I can be, yeah. just forgive me. I, I, you know, I, I don't do a whole lot of hands-on design these days because I'm much more consulting and you know working in yeah. ethics. But I pretty much got to a point as a designer, and I concede this is an arrogant perspective to have. But my job as a designer is not to earn your company money. I don't I don't care about that. I couldn't give less of a monkey's uncle about that. What I care about is inventing the future, is mm-hmm. imp- is helping, you know, everyday experiences of, of people to come be a little bit better than they are today. If you're smart as a business, great. You piggyback that and you can make money off it. And that's your mm-hmm. problem and it's not mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I, I actually... As I say, I recognize that's an arrogant and a privileged point of view to take. Nevertheless, I wish more designers were honest about mm-hmm. the impact design had and says, you know what, this is what I'm in it for and left, left the business side of things to other people. What do, what do you think about if I kind of threw that back and said, but we just said that technologists need to understand their impact and they might say the same, like, I just want to create stuff. It's up to you how you use it. Yeah. And we've just said, well, actually, no, it isn't. You need to, un- you need to <clears throat> anticipate the consequences. Are there other consequences we need to anticipate about our design effort that if we just la la ignore it, you know, we're not, we're also not being responsible? Well, what I'm what I'm arguing for is 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 certainly not to ignore those. It's to say that's what I care about, right? right. That is my primary yeah. impact. You know, my 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 role is to create impact, and so that impact for me is social, it's you know cultural yeah. it's etc and you know the business side if you can extract some value from that then then fantastic and obviously i'll try and hold your feet to the fire to make sure that that's done in a responsible manner because i yeah. don't want my work to be exploited in ways that yes. harm other people but uh yeah. yeah saying the impact is what i'm doing this for and the impact is you know the financial impact is sort of bottom of that list for me and 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 yet designers and a lot of organizations now uh these days have been you know, are, are quite commoditized and, and quite subordinated into delivery processes. Yeah. And they, they, they maybe have less of a, an overarching view of, of the totality of the things they're designing than, than they used to. We, I, I think, I think, you know, if we go back 15, 15 years or so, where design was quite often a bit more of a centralized function in organizations, there was there was probably thinking that was closer to the the strategic end of 
design's impact across the organization. Mm-hmm. Whereas today, <laughs> today product designers, quote unquote product designers, are so very subordinated into scrum teams and delivery processes that that I I wonder I wonder at that the ability to now have that impact. It, it almost feels like you know there's 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 a couple of battles here. There, you know, I think one of the battles that we see, and and going to Martin's point about you know designers speaking business, I think probably one of the reasons that we we talk about getting closer to the business is because maybe maybe because design has been subordinated in so many places that it feels like that's its requisite path back to mm-hmm. engagement right and discussion and discourse and power and you know and and all of that and so so maybe it's kind of defaulted into that space a little bit mm-hmm. whereas i think what you're saying is is there's a there's there's still a kind of you know why did you go into design to begin with right mm-hmm. you you, yeah. you didn't you didn't go into design to 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 do harm presumably <laughs> you 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 didn't go into design to to not feel like you were going to have an impact you you probably had you know a great optimism going into design and you probably had this sense of i'm going to create things that you know that will help people that will mm-hmm. that will you know create new futures um mm-hmm. and and so i think you know that a lot of these things are at odds now I think inside organizations, they're very difficult for, it's very difficult for designers to actually know where they stand. And therefore that, that, you know, <clears throat> almost that ethical stance or that stance they, they might've gone into design with is now at odds with where they find themselves. Hmm. Yeah. I think designers have been complicit in our own self commoditization. We've made some really, frankly, no, I, I, maybe not unintelligent, but ill-advised commitments. So for example, you know, the the positioning of user experience design as a science, I think is a fundamental error. It negates the role of craft and of artistry, and it creates this mentality that, you know, we had this whole thing in the UX movement that you should never really see the designer's hand, right? It was always just, you're allowing the purest expression of user need to come to the surface. Well, that makes you, you know, that makes you a commodity. That's, if that's what everyone else does as well, if you have no craftsmanship, if you have no mark on the product, then why do I need to hire you at you know a hundred thousand pounds when I can get someone to do the same for forty thousand? And that's exactly what's happened in the last wave of redundancies. All the hundred thousand people have been fired, and the forty thousand people have been retained. And then we have the design systems movement where we've decided to componentize and you know legofy our work. And guess what's happened? You know, it makes us even more useless and, and interchangeable i mean we're not really i'm going off on a tangent away from ethics here but i you know i i don't know how many years digital product design has less left as an industry but it's not more than 10 because generative ai is going to chew it up and spit it out because we've handed that to you know to these systems on a plate so yeah you know it's obviously then a, a question of okay well how do we regain influence if we've put ourselves in this position and, you know, yeah, there are these conversations about how can we get a seat at the table or regain a seat at the table. So I can t- totally understand why people will want to, you know, say, well, we need to speak the language of business and get closer to them. But I, I don't want a seat at the table. I want to flip the table. I think design is there to flip the table. I think design fundamentally has to adopt a stance of being not antagonistic, but agonistic. So agonistic meaning essentially kind of the 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 flip side you know the if you've got mm-hmm. the the standard way of doing things then the agonistic perspective is the opposite is the alternative way of doing things that yes is challenging and critiquing the normal way of doing things because it wants to do better and i think this is the role of design and i'm mm-hmm. i'm not interested as a designer in in continuing uh that role of subservience to business as usual it's it's interesting because i I did not go to design school. I did not train as a designer. I fell into research and UX design and information architecture and kind of absorbed it along the way. And then about halfway through my career, as I started to take on leadership roles for other designers, I started to try and understand a little bit more about why they had discipline behind that that I didn't necessarily have. And so I started to be involved in design education and you know, going to various design schools and colleges and understanding what they what they'd learned, and I was like, "Oh, cool!" And that's when I 
really understood that everybody goes into that education with the desire for impact, hmm. you know, and and impact. Normally at at scale, but some for some people it's I don't I don't mind as long as it's some impact with somebody. Hmm. And I think for me personally, it's not meant to be about uh, about me, but I guess it influences how I'm thinking about things. It, it, I what you're saying totally chimes for me. I I want that to be the experience that designers and people with those skills and craft have in working for companies. I, I guess one of one of the reasons I'm interested in the idea of, of liminal leaders and how to help people leading change and transformation is that I want them to see that value in that craft. Mm. And a, a little bit of, I, th- I think, the premise that we have here, which is what we're interested in being challenged, is that that means we might need those people to have an appreciation and understanding and an experience of those skills or that craft or what it does. But that also means we need to translate it to their level because so I get end up getting involved in a lot of conversations about how do we use these design mindsets and these systems thinking for the order of challenge that you're working at, mm-hmm. which is not the same order of challenge that uh, my lead visual designer is working at. Right. Um, but if you can see the value of that, then you might trust us to also do that with your product, not just your mm-hmm. business or your system. I I don't know what you think about that, but I don't expect all designers to want to have that as their ultimate career path. And I don't think that's what people think necessarily being a design executive is about. I think it's only one flavor of being a design executive, but I don't know what you think about that in the context. I think you're, I think you're onto something there with the, uh, you know, the, 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 the statement that not everyone wants that. It just depends on the type of designer you want to be. I'm a technologist. I've never done a day of service design in my life. Mm-hmm. I have no interest in service design. I, you know, I, I want to make tech. I think tech is fascinating. There has been this, you know, frustrating sort of euphemism treadmill that we've seen within design, right? Where everyone tries to outflank the last person. You know, you're an interface designer and then you were an information architect, but then the UX people said, well, we're bigger than that. Then the service design people said, oh, we're bigger than that. And they have the systemic yes. and strategic yes. designers saying, well, yes. actually, at some point, you know, I've, I did I did a jokey meme type thing where, you know, I just had like a set of these Venn diagram, you know, these interlocking circles or concentric circles, each getting bigger. And eventually we had the cosmos. And then beyond that was UX, right? It just there's this totality kind of perspective. Where we just want to try and own everything. And, you know, if that's the point of leverage, if you think that you want to look at those deep systemic challenges, then you know, genuinely, that's fantastic. It's not for me, <laughs> you know, because your, your leverage weakens the more you try to influence. I personally choose to have a stronger impact on the things that I can affect and I leave skilled uh, thinkers. You, you get this with ethics as well, right? You know, you, people mm-hmm. say, well, you know, isn't this really a political problem? Isn't isn't this, you know, capitalism is the problem? You're like, well, capitalism has some ethical questions to answer, but I'm not equipped to yeah. take that on. We need political theorists and activists and so on. And, you know, I love that there are talented people asking those questions and I can chip in, chip in what I can from my point of view, but it's not my battle yeah. or it, or it's, or I choose to have a locus of control that's tighter. So I, you know, so, please go ahead. No, I was just saying, so, I mean, we've ended up talking a little bit about our, our own kind of individual desires for where we can have impact. And those are probably good examples for people listening in, like, you know, because, these are about uh, choices and motivations and things that drive you. If I could take it back though to like our observations on companies, leadership teams, because <laughs> they become organisms in and of themselves, right? And uh, what you know f- from your exploration of 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 ethics in technology and the work that you've been doing with—I mean, you've done some consulting work with companies individually and some institutions and organizations like the ICO and others. And you just mentioned the layers and layers and layers of, you know, well, it's not my problem. So how far does the, it's your responsibility go within a company, right? When does it get flipped over to Airbnb saying, well, let New York city work out what it thinks. And then we'll just deal with the regulations. It's not our problem. You know, uh, what's your observation so far? Again, I, I acknowledge that, but probably there's a lot of context hmm. depending industry at the extent to potential which your product might have harm. I imagine that 
the ethical responsibilities come a lot closer in pharma than yeah. they do in Airbnb, yes. you know, for example. How do, how, do, how do businesses navigate that now and in the near future? Sure. So the trend, as I mentioned before, has always been to claim as little responsibility as you can get away with, right? Because mm. we're incentivized to do that because claiming responsibility is difficult and you know costly and risky. The way I, the model I have now for a lot of ethical challenges or ethical work that needs to be done inside organizations is raised basically in three parts. You need to anticipate the impact that you might have. You then need to evaluate and prioritize them, and then you need to mitigate them or capitalize on them because they might be positive opportunities as well. But that's that, those are the three uh, essential stages. The anticipation, this is where you can use some of the tools that we've talked about, maybe from foresight, maybe from, you know, the, the you know, uh, technology assessment uh, toolkits, you know, et cetera, that we've, we've mentioned at the start. What you're talking about here is that second bit. Now we have a list of things, essentially things that could go wrong or impacts that we might have that are negative or potentially positive, but, you know, things could change for sure. You need to evaluate them, which ones are actually important which ones are in our remit, our locus of control, which ones can we actually affect, which ones do we not uh, think we have a chance of affecting. This is where you need some ethical skill because you need to be able to justify uh, which harms are you know, the important ones, which ones you choose to take on, which ones you ignore. Let's say we're, let's say we're just focusing on harms to make the, the conversation easier. Now, I think businesses can do some of this themselves if they familiarize themselves with ethics and some of the tools and some of the ways that ethicists talk about this this sort of stuff but at some scale particularly where you have the larger harms you probably need actual ethicists i'm not saying necessarily on staff but you may may need to consult with them and say look we've identified these things should we be worried and what can we do about them and i say consult with ethicists you probably also need to consult with members of that cohort that you might be affecting representatives activists from that group you know if they're you know, a minority represented group, for example, then you, you you should probably talk with them and understand from them how severe this impact is going to be. If you think there's going to be a, you know, an impact on your city, you should probably be talking to your local government or your council. You know, it's, it's, it's identifying the stakeholders outside, external, who are not just able to contribute to the decision, but who may be affected by the decision. It's that second cohort of stakeholders we often overlook and taking the time to understand and you gain a bit more evidence and a bit more understanding of the severity of those impacts. And as I say, if you have, you know, say a trained ethicist who can help you navigate that, then ultimately you can treat it a little bit like a risk management program, right? We've got these series of risks. We've got a risk log. Here are the 28 things that we've identified could go wrong with Project X. And, you, you know, you can even just reduce it down to your severity times risk score and you say, well, this one's a nine. We've got to put that at the top. This one's the two. We can probably get away with that, but let's monitor it and see how things go. But it's it's evidence gathering. You know, the anticipation stuff, you can do a lot of that internally. You probably want some external perspectives as well. But when you're trying to understand the severity and the impact, then, you know, it really behooves you to try and understand better by talking with and better understanding uh, the, you know, the people who you might be affecting. And I guess that's where, as a business, you you can make some very conscious decisions that, you know, we may, our mission statement says, you know, we're going to be, you know, having this kind of impact in the world. And then you can actually start to say, well, actually, what we meant by impact was, and in the world was, you know, because actually, we don't believe we're best placed to control for the mitigations of Mm. the definitions outside of that. And that, that becomes... Transparent. I guess it's a little bit like when Google went from, you know, talking a lot about do no harm to, you know, kind of going, well, right, that's really hard. <laughs> and, you know, it, it doesn't take, it, I mean, I, I mean, whatever we want to say about, maybe I've used a, a kind of the wrong example because it's such a big example, but I, I don't discount the idea that a company could start by saying something like do no harm and then go, oh, wow, that's really complicated, mm. but we still have. And a, a kind of values-based intent there, mm-hmm. but we have to kind of not overpromise. <laughs> well, you have to you have to have a bit more detail. So it's yeah. it, the Google yeah. motto is "Don't be evil." I think was in the in the, oh, was that was it? That was it. Sorry, don't, it? Don't, don't be evil. evil. Sorry, um, sorry. And yeah. it's, it's used yeah. as a bit of a gotcha. I think it I'm, wasn't actually that central tenet. It was kind of originally a throwaway point in a, in a 
you know, in a, yeah. in a sort of an employee manifesto. But it became this this catchphrase, yeah. if you like. The problem is, okay, you have to define evil, right? You, you, yes. you know, it's it's in and of itself. It all it means is ethics matters. Try to be ethical. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. How how do we operationalize that intent? That's that's where the you know the, the the real detail is. And actually, I will say in Google's defense, when they got rid of that document, they replaced it with much more specific guidelines, particularly on the ethics of AI. And this was after Project Maven and all this sort of stuff. There was backlash internally about you know are we going to be using AI for all sorts of harmful things. So they now have direct and action guiding, which is really important, action guiding principles on how they think ethics and AI should interact. But you're right, you know, you, you can start with these sort of aspirations and values, you then have to do the hard work of translating those and saying, okay, what does this really mean? So I worked with a client, I won't, I won't name, but they had a, a stream of work I wasn't engaged with, but it was, it was called Meaningful Innovation. So they had, you know, a, a program looking at what, what is meaningful innovation? I'm like, okay, I mean, that sounds great. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to need to define meaningful. And guess what? That was by far the hardest piece for them. It's like, once you do that, the rest is easy. Once you agree on what meaningful actually means, then yeah, you can kind of map it and say, okay, we we pledge to have this impact. We pledge to prioritize this over this action guiding principles. We will do this and not this. We will do this and not this. And it gets quite easy because you just use that as a barometer, use that as a sense check for what you're about to do. And is it, are you tilting in that direction or not? If, If not, then you need to re, you know, reposition yourself. But getting from that that value uh, statement to the specific action. That's tricky. That's that's where the ethics lens is really useful. That's where trained ethicists are, are fantastic. Well, no, I was just thinking that, you know, I mean, you know, it, it, you know, in that space, you know, the, 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 the mission, the mission and vision statements that organizations create and, and craft so carefully, <laughs> you know, the, the, Unless I, I think, I think from what I'm inferring is that you know, a the you really need to be careful about you know down to the down to the individual words in in those statements what you mean by them. There needs to be definition and and understanding and depth behind them. There there probably also needs to be some degree of action down into the business that reflects those things because so often I'll work with, I'll work with teams internally who are developing, you know, a uh, team mission and vision that, that aren't even aware of what their organizational mission and vision is. Right. Yeah. So, so they're, so they're, they're creating something that is, they're creating in a vacuum effectively not connected to, and the fact that they don't even know, that these things exist or where they exist means that that those values that are that that the organization feels it has communicated mm-hmm. they're not reflected in, in anywhere that you can find really in the organization and right. therefore you know th- therefore they're just words but but words have meaning mm-hmm. and and, that's, and that's and that's such a shame as well because uh, you know core values get get a lot of stick from certain quarters, but when they're done well, I think they're ethically terrifically important. So I used to work for Twitter and I remember in our new hire orientation, the very first day, in fact, you know, we were taken through the core values and you were were literally given sort of laptop cover stickers and you're like, choose one, choose the one that matters the most to you and stick it on your laptop. And pretty much everyone at Twitter had, you know, this, this core value that they'd chosen on the back of their laptop. So you were reminded of them constantly. Did Twitter always live up to them? No, but often it did, and they were good. You know, they kind of I, I like I liken them to sort of ethics, um, ethical decisions in deep freeze, right? Once you've made that commitment to a core value, then potentially you can just defrost it whenever you you know you have a tricky decision and say, well, we've we've already agreed as an entire organization that we will do this. Are we acting in accordance with that value? Yes or no, and that can be an action guiding uh, type thing. Now, Twitter, we had a couple of. Uh, values that came into direct conflict because one or two of them were not very well chosen. So that was a source of, of trouble. But in theory, they can be very good. They can be very useful. But, you know, as, as you say, you need to know where they are. You need to know what they are. You need to be able to probably recite them off the top of your head if you're a you know rank and file employee taking these decisions. And you need to connect them with the way decisions are made inside teams bit of scrum team or a product team or a project team or whatever scope you know program uh you have so sometimes that means you need to translate it into something more operational like a set of principles sometimes it's some something even more tactical like you know a set of design components you know we we 
you know, you might say, well, we, we want to be respectful of, of all cultures. Okay, well, design your forms so that re- they recognize non-Western character sets or non-Western name formats, you know, things like that. So you're not rejecting names that don't fit your uh, beliefs. So you might have very tactical, you know, sort of component level or design level feature, uh, ethical infrastructure, if you like, all the way up to larger organization stuff like you might need a, an ethics review board if you're working in particularly high risk areas. Then you need a process. Okay, how are they invoked? You know, when do they sit? Are their decisions binding or are they advisory? Uh, ethics sometimes get, I think, it gets a bad reputation for feeling like it's laborious and it's going to impose all this structure and and uh, you know process and you know uh, just heavy heavy machinery on you. It doesn't have to be that way. You can start with what you need mm-hmm. to make better decisions and then build the infrastructure that allows that to be a repeated habit. I think. And and it also sounds to me like you know decisions are happening all the time in the organisation. There oh, yeah. are decision structures in the organisation. There are risk management and governance structures in the organisation. It made me think about you know all the way back to maybe about two thousand and six, two thousand and seven, sitting in one of the banks, and at the bottom of every meeting was some guidelines from one of the regulations around customer care, hmm. right? Or or and. It was some words pulled straight out of the regulation, but it asked you at the end of every meeting to say, had we considered these five factors in the regulation? Hmm. And, you know, you could easily skip over it, not skip over it, like not do it, but, you know, have we really considered considered and understood the customer insight in this? Hmm. Well, yeah, to the extent that our customer insight is any good, yes, you know. So my reflection was what's changed over the last 10 years, I think, is the level at which the uh, it is expected that you will be aware of know of have the capability to do certain things like we are aware of the complexity of the world now a lot more than we ever were we are aware of biases in the world a lot more than we ever were there's no excuses anymore it is possible to get insights it's just a decision whether you do or don't mm. so the what i think i saw what is probably now 15 years ago is people kind of going, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. We, we, we had a survey last year, you know, yeah. Tick insight versus, well, we all know that that's as good as nothing now. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a, there's a level of expectation of you can respond to these things. So I think the thing I've kind of just taken away from this is your, your point about anticipate is probably the missing step for many, many organizations. Because once you've anticipated, you've made it visible. Mm. And then there are other mechanisms in your organization which can take that anticipation and evaluation and run it through. It just it becomes another input. Yeah. And I the other thing I thought about was the fact that you will you might end up making some decisions or clarifications a lot earlier. And I, I wonder if I wonder if people might get especially at an executive level get a bit stuck on well, if we say really early doors that we don't mean this, will somebody later on say to us, but you should have, you know, you therefore willfully ignored a segment. You chose to ignore them. You said it's not your remit, but we think it is. Mm-hmm. Are, there, are there risks ahead for organisations where they try and delimit themselves and then later, you know, regulator, government, society, politics, employees say, yeah, I don't think you should have done. Sorry, you're inextricably linked. Sure. I mean, there's that, there's certainly a risk. Uh, I think any organization that's doing that scoping work, though, is far better placed to handle those risks than an organization that isn't, right? Because they will at least be grounding that in something. I mean, heck, if the regulator says, why did you not consider this? You can point to the, the notes, right? We did the work. We did our diligent anticipation. We just genuinely didn't realize it was going to be that big a deal. That's fine. You know, having been on the inside of a regulator, if you can show Mm -hmm. that you considered these issues, even if you came to a decision that actually we don't agree with, we might say, well, you need to change that. But you're probably not going to get fined huge, you know, hundreds Mm -hmm. of millions of pounds under GDPR or something like that. It's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Here's what you can do better next time. But if you haven't done that exercise at all, then that's when the risks, I think, are the most, uh, most severe. But you're absolutely right. I mean, there's this, the law of unintended consequences, right? You will always miss something in that anticipation work. You will always make mistakes in scoping something and saying, you know, we didn't think that was going to be our problem. It turns out it was. Okay, 
then you learn from that and you try to improve. Ethics is a habit. It's not a it's not a characteristic that someone is born with that they're a better person or a more ethical person. It's it's practice, it's routine, it's it's flexing that muscle and over time that muscle gets stronger. Excellent. Great. I think we uh, it feels like a really nice place to bring it to sure. a close actually that that it is a muscle that it is a habit. We're we're at our uh, at our time with you. So sure. Brian is there anything else you want to quickly reflect on or ask about before we just too many things to think about isn't it <laughs> isn't it so much <laughs> it's it's a deep field and it sucks you in that's the that's the thing once you start thinking about one thing you realize it contains 20 other things and yeah it's, it's yeah and it, it's fascinating i see ethics everywhere <laughs> and, well but you know, you know designers do well, this but, as well but it is. it's just another yeah it is or, or lack of, I, I think, you know, I think, yeah, you know, the, yeah. the, the conversation kind of makes you think about, you know, all those moments where, where you could see that, <clears throat> that people were either almost very closely approaching having the right discussions and then backed away for mm-hmm. quite a number of reasons or thought they'd have the right discussions, but then there weren't the right follow-ups mm-hmm. to those discussions or they just never had them at all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and a lot of the time that that pulling away is they got scared of defining certain things. Mm-hmm. You know, just say the word meaningful without saying, well, what makes meaningful meaningful? Because well, it's hard work, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, stuff. I think I think once you do that, the, 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 I, I just wonder if there's a there's a fear that if if you go that distance and you and you define that work. <laughs> then then there's almost a there's almost a you know you almost have to then do something with it right and yep. and if we if we define it too much that 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 definition may commit us to yep. action right and we and we aren't ready for we actually don't want to do the action <laughs> we don't want to do the action we, you know we might find if we define the word meaningful that it ends up meaning non-profitable or yes. less profitable and that's exactly. what that's one of the things that scares organizations exactly. it's it scares organizations but you made the point earlier make the decision make it an do explicit it, decision. do it anyway yeah <laughs> understand and kind of go oh right so now what do we do with that yeah and we we have to turn around and say you know that you know that that you you redefine where the target market is hmm. it's the market that are willing to buy things like this um and it serves them and it makes us money but we don't do things in this area because we leave that to somebody else yeah as we don't have a business model that makes profit out of that there's zero point running a business that's going to run itself into the ground yeah exactly that and if you're if you're not yeah. looking at these issues then eventually you know that that will catch up with you it, yeah, that's my absolutely. contention anyway yeah it, it, it just reminds me of those those movies where they they uncovered that dark truth somewhere, mm-hmm. <laughs> somewhere along the way, buried it. Buried it, yes. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, and then it came out, and that's the story. Yes, it really goes well for that protagonist. <laughs> no, it, no, it really does. does it? Yeah. I think not to open up a new conversation, but perhaps to tantalize uh, or to tease with what I think might be a new conversation and, and to close close down as well is – that I think becomes about what is the end of an experience, a company, you know, we don't end things gracefully. And I'm massively inspired by Joe McLeod's work on that and ends and engineering. And I think there's a whole part of business and the economy that isn't looking at things as a cycle, right? And the cyclical nature of the world, which is why we have, you know, we experience volatility and uncertainty because the world is full of slightly chaotic cycles, but we never acknowledge that in business. Nobody ever plans the end of a business, you know, and I think there's a whole nother kind of conversation that would go out from that, which would link, you know, ethics, unintended consequences, you know, externalities. And it'd be really interesting. So Ken, thank you so much for taking this time with us. Sure it's thing. been a, a really great deep dive. I, I found it really helpful to help us, you know, consider, you know, what we might be looking at with liminal leaders and the skill sets, the mindsets uh, and the limits of that as well. Also the kind of holding up certain and creating a space for certain crafts. We've deep dived on that with design and, and why those have uh, those have value. I'm really excited to see what happens for you uh, next year as you move into looking at anticipatory ethics Thank you. and hearing more from that and keeping in touch over, over time as you go through that. So 
thank you so much for your time sure pleasure no it's great to, great to be here thanks for the invitation thanks for listening to liminal leaders we'd love to continue the conversation with you our listeners hear feedback about this episode thoughts about who we should talk to next pose questions you'd like us to consider in future conversations and as always suggestions for new and interesting cocktails to get us through the long nights ahead and if you want to learn more about this podcast its hosts or guests go to liminalleaders.com. Thank you for listening.